count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of... Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. You have found Daniel Donato's Lost Highway. That lost highway. Yes. Howdy, y'all. What is going on? We are here on the Lost Highway podcast. I've been thinking a lot about Eddie Van Halen lately. Like a lot, all the time, listening to him with a, with a whole different level of depth than I ever would have. And here's the thing. Carl Sagan said this. To live in the hearts that we leave behind is to is to live forever. To live in the hearts that we leave behind is to live forever. When I listen to Eddie Van Halen's music, I can't tell that he's dead because it still affects me the same way I did when he was alive. And so he was a vessel. He was a, he was a communicator and he was a messenger. And he rose to the journey. He rose to the responsibility like any hero does and fulfills. And here's where I'm at. I think that the hero's job is to rise to the journey and to fulfill it but it might not be the hero's job to understand all the gears that are working behind it. I'm sure Eddie could tell you the scales he was using. I'm sure he could tell you all the gear he was using. I could, he could tell you how to play what he was doing, but he couldn't tell you how to sound like him. He couldn't tell you how to make people feel like the way he made people feel. Um, I think it's because he was, he was really grounded in truth, beauty, and goodness, which seem to be the parameters of anything that is timeless. And to be timeless is to live forever. I think he was a hero. I think there was no one that created as much exponential growth aside from him than Jimi Hendrix at a popular scale, like uh, someone did on the guitar. Like uh, Jerry Garcia is one of the most listened guitar players in history, but to be as innovative as someone like Eddie was, it's just, it's crazy. And to innovate in a modern sense on the guitar, man, what a challenge that is. Like, that's insane. So he, Eddie Van Halen passed away and it made me cry, it made me really sad. But the proof is in the pudding, y'all. <laughs> if you listen to Eruption, that resonates throughout the entire universe. It truly does. And it affects you. And it's real. And it doesn't matter if he's alive or not. And so I think if we keep our perspective on patience, persistence, and positivity, and then also keep in focus like a, de- a carrot dangling in front of us, truth, beauty, and goodness, and you serve those parameters, you have the potential to create something that lives forever and you can live you can live in the hearts that you leave behind just like Eddie Van Halen did and so those are my thoughts on Eddie passing for everyone who's been messaging me asking about uh, Van Halen tribute of some of, com- of some kind and uh, those are my words and, and my love for uh, the work that Eddie contributed uh, for all of us to love forever My next guest today is is Mr. Nick Shoulders, and uh, just like a lot of people during the time of COVID-19, um, I discovered Nick on YouTube. Um, here's why. Uh, I was watching a video of, of him playing, and my nine-year-old sister stopped and started loving what he was doing, and I'm always watching to see what younger people are attracted to um, because they don't have an opinion or a reason to be affiliated with a certain genre or anything yet. 
And so she really responded to the truth that was coming out of what Nick was doing. And I came into looking to uh, the, the songs that he covered and covered Slim Whitman, Hank Sr., and a lot of influences on uh, uh, similar to, to what I love. And he's just fucking awesome. And the thing, too, is that he deals with the currency of the human affect and the currency of truth um, through the medium of his music. Um, he's not really wearing like a, a bunch of wallet chains and like true religion jeans and trying to like adhere to something that's like politically correct. He's just being himself. And it's funny to see how the market like loves that and how his videos are just getting tens of thousands of views um, within days of him posting it. So I asked him to come on the podcast and talk about his story. And man, we touch on some beautiful and heavy concepts here. Uh, Mr. Nick Shoulders, everyone. Nick Shoulders, how are you doing, sir? I can't complain. How are you doing, Daniel? Whoa, my gosh. We are coming to you from your vehicle. Yeah, this is my 2003 uh, Toyota Tacoma. Uh, I don't live in town, and I don't have internet or service in my house, so when I come out here to town, uh, I usually have to like hang out my friend's carport, but now it's kind of cold, so uh, the carport's out. I'm in the car. Whoa, man. That's really heavy. That's not. <laughs> I was like, good internet, and uh, he and I are starting a record label, so I figure, like, you know, this is a good carport to be in. So you're starting Gar Hole Records. Yeah, yeah, you must have seen the World Wide Web thing about it. Yeah, we're we're trying to put together something to where, like, I don't know, I really and truly, my music stuff only started working since COVID, and so all the labels are like, dude, it's COVID, we're not signing anybody. So we were like, well, let's put this record out ourselves. Fuck it. So uh, that's that's kind of how things have been where I'm just like, we needed to create this out of necessity and I want to help my friends out, put their records out and all that. So it's it's really new, but we're stoked on it. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons I'm in this particular carport. So short, shout out to Kurt if he ever hears this. Uh, appreciate the internet all the time. Oh my gosh. So are you handling any of that internet stuff? Is that is that is that like all... I'm imagining you're handling the creative and, and the processing behind it all, coming up with the ideas, maybe find the locations. But are you handling posting and doing that all on your own? Are you that independent of an artist? Or, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, d- I don't want to sort of like over overhype the independent artist bit, but again, when COVID started, I had you know we the last show I played was at Saint Rock Tavern in New Orleans to like 40 friends, wow. and I. 1200 Instagram followers or something and you know two albums on Spotify with very I mean one had just come out like the new record had just come out so literally all of the stuff that is you know my the the engine working behind this music has happened in a vacuum of any sort of like professional support or structure so I'm running the Instagram I'm doing all the things I I you know my girlfriend films me for the YouTube stuff like it, it's entirely just just us kind of like unexpectedly uh the inheritors of this really great, cool, uh, impressive amount of attention and and uh, support, and it, it's baffling and so profoundly uh, flattering and and humbling and all the things. But really, like, yeah, it's, it it kind of just happened all at once. And so, yeah, that's all me. I'm a one man operation. We're just now about to diversify the merch thing. I was doing all the merch stuff myself. I tried to launch merch this summer for two days. I got 450 orders in uh, 24 hours, and it ruined my month. So, I mean, like. You know, it, it's amazing how well this stuff has worked out very quickly. Well, it's it's getting bright out here, but uh, man, it it is unexpected. It has not not been something I like planned on happening this year at all. Man, we did the same thing with a record that we put out. We just like literally in my studio right now. You can see the literally the mounds of 
the mounds of boxes that we have, uh, we're at over 800 plus orders. And it's like, it's, it. it's crazy how if you stay true to what you do and you try to communicate to an audience in a way that's honest, you can be a very independent and still be very successful and have, and have a great, inspiring go at it. And it seems like you're doing the same thing. Yeah, entirely. And I mean... I was pretty satisfied to just play dance shows in New Orleans to the homies forever. You know, like we we had such an interesting thing going down there to where uh, with a tourist crowd and the way that the dance culture and the show culture works there, we could play five nights a week if we wanted to. And everybody goes to each other's shows and like, it's all very partner dance oriented. And I'm a drummer too. So I got to play for my friends bands and do all this fun stuff. But that all, I mean, I would have been fairly well satisfied for that to have been my musical existence in perpetuity. But uh, I'm, I am very, very happy that uh, the World Wide Web's figured out I exist. It's 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 really great to, to have these folks wanting my art and my music. I mean, I I wouldn't have uh, have imagined it at the beginning of the pandemic. I honestly, the pandemic's helped out more music folks that I can think. I mean, it's obviously done terrible, terrible things for the industry, but on an individual basis, and I'm sure you can attest to this. Like, there's there's been some obvious benefits. Uh, I I am relieved to not be on the road in some ways. Yeah, there's definitely a thing that's happening as to a Wild West syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. And like, uh, it's really Darwinian in the sense of the people who really want to make it happen. You have a, a direct platform of like a 30 plus percentage growth of online uh, right. in, in engagement. And it's like, well, that's cool. And every, the success indeed is happening in a bubble. And I'm, I'm really interested to see the people who are, who are, um, who are having success pre-COVID and what they're going to do post-COVID. And even more interestingly, like the people who weren't quite having success like uh, pre-COVID, you know what I mean? I mean like success, like, um, you know, so we were doing like, uh, we canceled a sold out show of like 250 tickets. Right. Right. It's like, that's really successful, but that's mm-hmm. not like, it's not like an arena tour. It's like, I wonder what, like what those cats are going to be doing. But like, it sounds to so, me like you weren't really touring or doing anything like that. Right. You were just playing down in new Orleans, just doing your thing. Well, it, it's a little bit of a, it's a mixed bag there. Cause I, you know, I come from like the, the punk hardcore world where you play once a month in town tops or what age were you at when you were for how old are you now? I'm 31. Okay. Fuck. Yes. You're doing so good for 31. It is you're doing a fantastic, inspiring job. My God, sir. I, I mean, I, I. Well, I mean, what's the next question? Because it usually is like something effective. When did you start doing this stuff? And that's a really complicated answer because I've been whistling and yodeling since I was a child, but I haven't picked up a guitar, tuned it to standard, and written songs like this until 2017, 2016, like right on that line. That's insane. You just want uh, a good mind for. For um, like Midwest American countryisms. I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit for saying. Oh. Say? Man, I'm just thinking. So you've only been writing for about three, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, your songs, I mean, there's there's such like in the vein of that. I like to call it like this Midwest American music. Like you could call it country, but it's really just like American is music. Uh, sure. People live in America and like and, and understand the dialogue of of that world. It's like the John Primes and the Tom T. Halls and the Slim Whitmans, you know, and the people like that. Oh. Like, um, so you must just have a fantastic mind for that. But I'm assuming you kind of always been creative. Well, I I, I appreciate the comparisons. I mean, those are all flattering people to get measured in because I I really feel that like. Kind of the heartland wit is uh, 
Mm-hmm. It's something that I, I always identified with as sort of the Roger Millers, you know, that the guy, the cats were kind of a little too weird for straight country, but still kind of got dragged into it because they were sort of ancestrally and uh, um, uh, by technique tied to it. And that's kind of my deal where I, I come from a long line of whistlers and warblers. And uh, what's the difference between a whistler and a warbler? <laughs> Well, for example, my grandfather and my grandmother in Arkansas, they have like a Louisiana deep south, like vibrato, kind of this gospel warble, the kind of thing. And that's what I was around when I was a kid. And then my dad's side of the family is from St. Louis and they have the like high tenor singing and the whistling and they worked on freight trains like my my great uncle or my great grandpa, I think both of them actually, but uh, they were kind of like the train whistle, like working class family that uh, just sort of sang and made noise constantly. And so I, I, I would like to think I'm something in between the like North Ozark whistler and the Deep South warbler are both part of my pedigree. But I did grow up mostly in the mountains. So it's kind of I got a weird mixed bag. You know, I, I've kind of inherited these things. But also as a product of environment, I've developed a, a, a style that that's very much based on the fact that my backyard was a rocky hauler of 30 acres. You know, it's. It's sort of like a, it's a byproduct of environment, but also I I did get this inheritance and I'm very uh, lucky for that in a lot of ways. Yeah, man. I think, you know, inheritance can always be potentially lucky. It's the minds that find ways to curate success and and find skill in what they do, regardless of what their, of what their background is. Right. And it's like, that's truly the sign of an artist to somebody who can uh, take in the stimuli around them and then create something that's only that one mind could have created at that place in time. Um, really great job. Well, I was just going to say like, you know, despite all that pedigree and tradition and whatnot that I can harp on, um, I think you, you touched on something, which is that I, as a mind and stuff didn't necessarily fit in in like Bible Belt, Arkansas. I've always been a weirdo that drew, uh, bizarro illustration, like all the album art and stuff you're seeing. That's all my drawings, all the flyers and whatnot and t-shirt designs. That's all me. Oh, yeah. a really bizarro illustrator, like natural science kid who spent most of his time in the woods and happened to have singing family. So it's not like, like I'm going to be a country singer when I was eight years old, but I was like, you know, singing along to Hank Williams and driving around on back roads like anybody else that gets connected to this culture, you know? And I I felt like I had something to say in the genre, even though I'd been existing outside of it. And like I said, the punk and hardcore world and traveling and like, being involved with uh, with stuff like DIY culture is so inter interwound with like rural, you know, do it yourself ethos, and I think that's something that like people end up mashing together often because they are not incongruent. You know, they're pretty much in, like they're tied in all these ways that I think a lot of artists end up utilizing, and I think that's that's like a beautiful thing. So when you're talking about that DIY culture of, of growing up in the, in the area that you did, how did that manifest in ways that were not music? Because like, really, man, it's like the people that, that come from my heritage, um, you know, so my mom's Russian Jewish and then my, my dad's Italian. And they both were, um, both their families immigrated here to the U.S. via the Northeast, right? So not quite the same geographic tendencies of where you're from. Um, but culturally speaking, it's de- you get it done. You roll your sleeves up and you wake up every day and you work and you, you figure it mm-hmm. out. And dude, I can feel that in music. I can just feel it in the way that you carry yourself. And so you're talking about that DIY culture. How is that happening in your life in, in, when people around you? Well, I, I love that idea. And I mean, like that also, I want to say that like, I really don't necessarily 
buy into this idea of country music being sort of like um, linearly descended from the region that I'm from. I listen no. to some, well, I listen to like Klezmer music and, uh, you know, I love shit that, that, that like you can hear warbles and yelps and yodels and weird emulative crying sounds in the folk music of Eastern Europe just as much as you hear it other places. So I, I, you know, I just wanted to get that, that card played, but, um, yes. The Anglo-Saxon influence, right? The Anglo-Saxon thing on, on all, on like the, uh, the initial, uh, manifestation of lyrical works in the U S is, is there's a direct correlation there. You would not have U S music without Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon influence. Mm-hmm. I'm a dumbass, so I don't really know if that's if that's real or not. But that's what that's what I can see from like all the influence uh, tracing that I've done. And the fact that you agree with it—that's huge. Um, you know, it's like everyone says, like, "Oh, well, M- Mumford and Sons." Like, "Oh, what a what a unique sound." It's like, well, it is, right? But if you go and you listen to that uh, really traditional Irish music, you know, the the tales that are just public domain, like you don't even we don't even know who wrote those songs. You can right. hear that direct influence in the chords, and it's funny now. Like if you start observing like Bill Monroe, you're like, "Oh, okay, Bill was totally listening to that music." Like that happened. Yeah. And you can hear that too. And I think that's so, so fascinating about, I guess, what when we do talk about like why is country music literally uh, descended from the South or like most people associate that's way. When you hear like your Bill Monroe's, you don't hear the quite the Irish thing. You're not hearing like dun 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 with the beat coming down there. You hear dun 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 and you're hearing the blues and you're hearing the black influence of West Africa and that. So I think that's what really what makes American music so beautiful is that intersection. I mean, like. That's one specific thing, but let's get back to DIY. I don't want to digress. Yeah, too. Let's go. <clears throat> but um, I don't know, man. I'm like, again, I'm kind of a nature punk with singing family that just happened to make country music uh, my life. I, I, I really consider DIY and putting on shows and uh, having sort of a, a scene within a place that doesn't respect or value or really commodify the creative output that you're involved with, like skate, skate culture, and uh, punk stuff, punk music, metal music, all that yeah. stuff. That was bread and butter, like most of my uh, adolescence and mid twenties. Oh, wow. and I feel like that sort of approach to music of like, yeah, you get shit done. You like have extra chords and you wrap those right, and you have like little swirlies for your chords and you keep them in a box and all these things. You know, like yeah. that level of precision and having to take care of your equipment that goes into being in a metal band, which was my life. When I got into country music and started. Really, I, I was mostly a busker. I didn't start playing shows as a singer-songwriter. I was playing on the streets out west and living in my van. So like that DIY thing of just like, yeah, you get shit done, you wake up, this is your job, like you have a marketable skill, you're not special. That whole sort of like mm. way of approaching busking was so different because a lot of folks are busking and they're great at it, but there's an element of indulgence that's saying, you know, come to me, whereas I really felt like I was sort of trying to be the company man. I was playing to the, my crowd. I was playing to the street. If it's like, not a good time for the kick drum hi-hat banjo playing Jimmy Rogers songs. And let's key it back and like just do some very basic bluesy things and just like, you know, reading the room. And I feel like that level of playing sort of like reading the room and, and respecting your surroundings and stuff like that's, that's kind of a way of interacting with the world that I'd like to think is a product of my upbringing and this place and everything like that. But it does translate to music in a very like direct and immediate way. And people are, will say stuff like, Oh, I really appreciate how y'all uh, composed yourself and did all these things. And I was like, is there another way? Like, what's what's the other way of doing this? You know what I mean? Like, and so I, I think that that sort of like DIY ethos of like you just 
wake up and get this done. Um, I, I appreciate it, but it's not necessarily like it was something I, I sought out and really imbued myself with. Like it, it's just sort of a, it's a trickle down effect. And I'm, I'm grateful for that like byproduct of my environment, I guess. Yeah, man. I mean, Jesus, right. It seems like now I think like the term of like trying to pursue artistry requires a decent amount of bravery. Um, I mean, especially with the literal fact of like moving forward in 2021 when the uh, the endeavors to hopefully start touring again become a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be a literal bravery that needs to be had there. And also, you know, understanding and, and, and information and, and how to interact with the world in a way that's wise. Um, and one way that you just mentioned, which requires bravery because it requires you kind of putting your ego aside, which is reading the room. Um, mm-hmm. So, man, I came up playing in hockey. I started busking when I was 14. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, playing with a rolling microcube on, on the lower Broadway 400 block in Nashville. And then got my way into Robert's Western World, which is like the honky-tonk to, to be at like in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the concept of reading the room is the realest thing there. Like, there's no sound guy. Everyone gets like a sure SM57, like, and you just mm-hmm. turn your Fender Deluxe Reverb up. And you just play and you read the room. And it's like that as I started touring, I learned like that's not something like everyone does. Like some bands really just have a show and they go mm-hmm. on the road and the show is the same in Albany as it was in Kansas City, as it was in Albuquerque, and as it's going to be in Alberta. You know, and it's like, that's cool, but you're not that. And I'm not that either. And I really mm-hmm. love those people because I think that is the human element, right? Because the, the human variable is the thing that can make uh, the show, the best fucking show you've ever had. Um, so when when Nick Shoulder says like, okay, I read the room, what in your mind does that mean? Because I'm really fascinated by that because I think you do a fantastic job at reading the room. You even read the room on YouTube, which is <laughs> really, really meta. You know what I mean? But you do a great job at it. <laughs> well, again, and I, I don't want to over... I don't want to overclaim this because I've definitely flubbed. Everybody does, but like... Sure, you have to. Well, you have to, yeah. I mean, how are you going to test uh, test those limits? But uh, so let's just take South Louisiana as a microcosm. You know, I, I live in Arkansas now because of the pandemic. None of, there's no work in New Orleans, so uh, I, I love the folks down there. But we had to kind of like reassess and, and get out. And if I were playing a New Orleans honky tonk night, where it's like, you know, we got Chris Acker and me and a few other buddies playing on on a on a bill, you're going to have, you know, utterly hedonistic. Um, anti-fascist, uh, in-your-face country music the whole night <clears throat> with a bunch of uh, queers and weirdos and people in glitter and wigs, and it's oh. the best you're ever going to see. It's the free, it's the it's the gayest and least white country scene you'll ever be in, and it it just feels so freeing and wonderful, and it, it's grand. And then we get a gig the next weekend, and it's the Abita Opry on the North Shore. And I really respect the dude putting it on, and I really like uh, Abita Springs, and I think it's a great place. But you go up there and you go from like this utterly indulgent black magic uh, dance floor scene of New Orleans playing this uh, you know music that doesn't necessarily fit in with New Orleans, but still gets this kind of rock and roll, rock uh, R&B trickle down beat behind it. Sure. <laughs> to a beat of springs, to an Opry room where everybody's sitting, nobody's dancing. Oh, There's- yeah. It's, it's it's like a it's a completely different experience and you have to adjust from playing the night before at St. Rock Tavern to go into that kind of thing. Right. Like they read the room, like I'm talking about those kind of contrasts. And, and we're like you know, we're playing metal music and we'd have to record music in church. So like I, I was uh, not part of that world. And so I, I 
I have been very effectively uh, indoctrinated with how to get out of a situation without being uncomfortable. And it's code switching. And it's unfortunate sometimes, like it's not good for everybody. But like when I'm in that that group, uh, you know, the church ladies in Abita Springs, Opry, or, you know, whatever it may be, uh, there there's an adjustment that has to be made. And um, I think reading the room in a place like that is like we bring the tempo down. Uh, drums aren't as hot. I play my guitar slightly differently. I, I didn't start playing acoustic guitar in standard until a couple of years ago, like we talked about. So I basically figured out how to do that washboard boom chuck, like, you know, what Western swing style guitar. And I never got past that. So like, you know, I'll kind of soften the edge off of that. But like, really, it's mostly about, um, it, I, I think, tone. Uh, and that's kind of a hard thing to put your finger on. It's not really an easy way to articulate what I'm talking about. But like, there's just, if it, you know, if you come in there and your sound has an ass on it, people are going to are going to notice, and like that has to kind of get pulled back in a place where uh, maybe that won't be appreciated. And I, I think folks will hear the band as it is. Either way, it's not like we change completely, but something about tone, something about the way you carry yourself. You just have to be humble in a way that like you're not bringing the. And you know, that's the thing. Like you said, some people have that same show every night, and I respect that immensely. And I wish mm-hmm. I was that performer. Right. Uh, I really do. Like, I see folks that can like walk into a room and just do that. I'm like, man, y'all have that shit down. Like, right. I I don't know if I could be that up tempo if it wasn't like inspired by my surroundings. You know, someone that can go into a dead bar and just knock the the roof off of the place by like playing their full ass set. I'm like, that's great. I would totally change my my approach to that. But like, y'all just did that, and that's awesome. You know, uh, it's not my style, but it's uh, it's something to behold. And I I know bands like that, but they don't. They don't come up in with the way we did with the like the tourist scene, quote unquote, where you're having to adjust to an environment. And I think that makes you so much more of an adaptable player. Yeah. But it can make you, um, it can make you maybe a, a cautious player, where some people will be like, "I don't give a damn. I'm just doing this." Where I'm be like, "I kind of want to be able to pay for lunch tomorrow, so I might not do that." <laughs> like I want my tip jar at the end of the night. So it's like, I don't know. I yeah. I, I see sides of it. Yeah. I really do. The tip jar really is like, um, you know, Willie Nelson started that tradition and, um, you know, what Willie actually bought his guitar at Robert's Western world. Um, I didn't, I didn't know bought, either. Of them. No one knows that. It's, it's fucking crazy. And you know, the tradition of, of the tip jar, um, was started by Willie Nelson. So man, like I'm, I come from the, the room where that started and it's like, it's an insane energy. And it's, again, it's a really human exchange, an example of bartering. You know, you're telling these people, Hey, like I have this, I have this thing that I do and it has a tone and it has a musical vibe and I'm going to entertain you for maybe four hours. I don't know how long y'all are doing shifts down Louisiana, but we usually play from like six to 10 and people cash and exchange. And it's Mm -hmm. a nice human element. Although now things are like PayPal and like tipping in Bitcoin and weird things like that, but still it's like the same thing. And man, I think that really creates a certain, um, business mindset that um, a lot of artists just don't even have the notion to even think about. And that's fine because that affects your art in a certain way, right? Right. Um, Like, you know, I doubt like um, Rod Stewart like ever gave a fuck about like a tip jar. Like, no. You know what I mean? It's like, that's cool. And neither did Hank Sr., I assume. You know, but certain ones do. It's like, we're part of that wave now that's really had to like work for our, for our deal. And it's like, that's a beautiful thing. You mentioned tone. Something I've been thinking a lot about lately um, with tone is like, how much of, um, like, do you ever think about vibrations as a human? 
I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm assuming. Okay, so because I, I have an idea about about tonality and vibration and stuff, where I, I will like physically right reduce or increase my like size of like a resonating chamber uh, to like to sing differently. Like I, I can, I, I don't know how to express it. I'm not a trained singer, but um, something about like that form. But may, maybe you're on a different track. Yeah, no, but that's beautiful. Like, so you're talking about, I toured with um, one of my heroes, Paul Cawthon, for a little while, and he would always tell me, like, about changing size. And that's a real thing, right? So that's all like the diaphragm and just, and approaching it from that way. I I don't want to like oversell my, I'm a a rube on music stuff, but I I, like am so self taught that when people come up and will say, I'm really fascinated by that thing you did, da 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 da. And I'll say, I'm so fucking sorry. I have no idea what you're talking about. me off but i'm i'm glad to know and i'm like okay cool but uh yeah that's really affirming to know that 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 actually is a thing because i i feel like it's uh it's hard to articulate otherwise like hey you just get bigger and then you sound bigger you know (laughs) that's the thing that freaks me out about music okay so like um i'm very self-taught but i'm also very much in a coming from a place of where i can pretty much like I can explain on like a quantitative level, like everything that's happening, like numerically, musically. But the thing I can't explain, and the thing that perplexes me at the age of 25, having been making money from music for 11 years, is not the what, but why. Like, why is it that when I strum a G, it affects people? And why Mm -hmm. is it when you yodel, it affects people? It's like, you could tell people all day, like what it is you're doing, or at least I could. And it's, but the thing that's really beautiful is that actually doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. there's this weird thing that happens when you omit a tone from your body, it affects people. And so really? do you think the, um, something I've been thinking about is maybe I, I like my looking too deep into music in some way it might've like dulled a sword of like taking away that mysticism. And then there's artists like such as yourself who don't know what they're doing, but also know what they're doing. Right, because so they can read a room and do things like that, and so d- you never really cared to like look into like the logistics of, of of what you were doing, anything like that. You just kept it like in in this weird like unknown mystical place. It seems, it you know, and I don't know how much of that was intentional and how much of it was pride and how much it was circumstance. Because oh, like uh-huh. I had to my dad at thirteen for the you know the Walmart drum set. Like I I didn't come up in a musical family where somebody put an instrument in my hand, Same and so when I was eight years old and I was playing my teeth, you know, and I could figure out how to do that. Or I was whistling. What the fuck? What do you mean playing your teeth? What are you even talking about? Like, okay, hold on. I'll I'll just do it real quick. Uh, Yankee doodle. It's just, I'm whistling. It's the same thing. I'm just whistling, but I'm adjusting the tone. And I figured out I could do my throat. And then, you know, like those little things. So I couldn't play an instrument. But I realized I had this relationship with tonality where I, on an intuitive level, was figuring stuff out because my dad's an incredible whistler, right? Like he can do bird calls and also whistle along with uh, with songs. And I think nine or ten somewhere in there, yeah, I realized like maybe I'm I'm about as good a whistler as my dad. That's that's pretty cool. And I've really been kind of pondering the mechanics of whistling. And I think this ties into what you're talking about, um, where vibration. Uh, it, there's like such a chicken and egg thing going on here because I'm whistling and it's muscles adjusting to the amount of air coming out of me where I'm putting like my tongue and the shape of my mouth to create the sound, right? <laughs> that goes out into the air and my ear hears that, goes into my brain via my nervous system and my brain adjusts 
the shape of my lungs and the shape of my mouth and where my tongue's at in real time to adjust to that pitch. So it's going back and forth yeah. in a way that, because like singing is in your diaphragm, it's in your inner ear, it's all that, but whistling is pretty external. You know what I mean? So like that, uh, I feel like I, I can't really explain what is that exactly is going on there, but that, rela- that relationship to tone with me where I realized as maybe a teenager that I could harmonize along with like construction equipment I was passing, driving or something. I was like, something's weird oh. about vibration and about the human brain, about what, I don't know what it is about this uh, relationship, but I'm, I'm in, I'm a part of it. Cause I'm not a trained musician. I'm actually, my, I don't have a degree, but I went to art school briefly. I'm a better artist at than anything, but like this as my most, my least trained, my least refined, and I guess my least corrupted avenue of creative output. And as such, like, it's very unfiltered. Like, sure, this is a lot of hours of country music and it's my family and it's environment. And it's also a lot of weirdness that is in my brain, but it's also just like whatever is raw, uh, my, my like general music relationship. Cause I don't have much in the way of refinement that I wish I could claim. But, you know, I, when I talk to someone like you who can break it down, I am all ears because I always want to know what exactly is going on. Cause I, I'm, I'm a science brain, you know, I, I could, tell you more about turtles and snakes and lichen than I could have, uh, about how I'm actually playing music, but I'm only getting paid for one of those things. So it's, it's kind of weird. That is a strange thing, man. And uh, man, the thing that's the most real is that there are some people who really just know how to like, I look at music very much like a jump rope that's kind of happening. And it's like, this jump rope is going, right? And right. it's like happening by this universal force. And how are you going to get in there and jump? And like, how are you going to do that move? And it's like, you're, mm-hmm. do I come in on this way? Do I come in on the, on the back feet, the top feet? What's the dynamic? And it's like, what's the room yeah. size? And like, can I hear myself? How am I feeling? There's so many variables. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, those people who really just know how to approach music in this way that's purely abstract um, at the source, not knowledge-based, not data-based, right? Not like a finance person. Um, that seems to be like really like an effective approach to this kind of unexplainable energy that is music that somehow the entire world agrees upon. You know what I mean? And it's sure. like the way that YouTube flexes music like a Rubik's Cube is that it'll put your video in front of anyone on the globe. And mm-hmm. the, that's crazy that like artists of our generation can see is like, oh, like Elvis never toured Europe. But like if Ellis was alive in 2020, he'd be fucking all over Europe because like he just didn't have the reach then. So now we can kind of see that music is this energy that says fuck cultures, right? Mm -hmm. I don't really care about democracy. I don't even really care if you're Maoist. Like I don't even care. Like I don't care about anything. Like it affects you on a human level that Mm -hmm. is deeper in the brainstem than like anything else. And it's like, man, you approach it from this way that is like really like an artist. Like my grandfather who recently just passed was, he would take huge canvas and just throw paint on it, you know, until he he said the paint would tell him to stop. And that to me was a really like, um, the first example of like man allowing himself to be in service to amuse. And Mm -hmm. When I feel you perform, man, I, I recognize the same energy. So do you ever think of yourself like, do you ever think of abstract concepts like that? Like the muse or like how you're feeling on like a soul level as a human uh, and how that affects your art and the way that you sound? Well, and, and I do, but it's really, and again, this is kind of like back to the science brain thing. I think of it on a, like a spiritual and very physical level where I'm sure. like, whatever there is that is that, well, okay, so my grandmother, um, speaking of like, you know, kind of old artist things and music at the brainstem, you know, she has really 
dementia. And up until recently, about the only interaction you could get out of her was um, was music, you know, and she could sing along to stuff and she could drop in on harmonies. Her mom taught gospel singing. And so she had this very deep, unbelievable connection to it. But like her dementia and me learning the early rudiments of the songs you're hearing now, like those kind of happened at the same time. Like I was hanging out around her and like learning guitar and learning these songs while she was sort of piping in and be like, oh, I know that one, but only in the way where she'd just be sitting there inert and then suddenly would be singing along. And you're like, wow, this is unbelievable. This person that like is just sort of like, that last year, and then is able to pop in on a harmony on a song she probably hasn't heard in 40 years. Like that's unbelievable. But, but whatever that is, you know, like whatever that is at, at, at the core of us, um, like that's what I feel like we're tapping into whenever we hit that that spot. You know, whenever things, whenever we're, really resonating with an audience and resonating with ourselves, we're finding whatever that like base reaction is that most um, sincere, like earnest, strange thing at the root of our like evolutionary relationship with sound. And uh, yeah, I just love that, you know, like playing stuff like the mouth bow or whistling, like all those things have these like a uh, hunter gatherer associations where it's like, I can do a cardinal the same way that maybe somebody in the bush walking around with an atlatl used to be able to figure out how to do things and like that, that continuity and that, that piece of time. Cause I, I'm a, I was a big paleontology kid. So deep time and continuity and What's sort of time. What is deep time? Like what is, I've never heard this before. So the idea of, um, of human consciousness, not being able to comprehend the scope of time. So like we can, our lifetimes and we can think of human civilization. But really, when we get into exponential time and how much time has elapsed in the course of history, it, it, we, our minds aren't necessarily capable of actually understanding that, that the, the level of abstraction we'd need for that. Sure. And when I was a child, I, I would, lived in the Washita Mountains in Arkansas. And if you know anything about the Washita, it's full of quartz crystal and evaculite. And it's very, very, very old mountains. And there are these road cuts where you could see the layers and the rock. And I remember thinking like, holy shit, but you know, I'm six years old. I, I get it. Like, this is a beach for 10,000 years. And then right above that is when this was volcanic ash for the next 300,000. And then and like all that deep time hit. And it was a very lonely, scary thing to confront as a child and not have anybody that I was close to to, to like understand. But the idea of deep time and that continuity and not necessarily like us being minuscule and insignificant as a, as a neck thing, but a really beautiful thing like that, that whole uh, aspect of physiology and music and how it all ties to something bigger than me. Like that's, that's very much like the undercurrent of all this. And you know, when I talk about uh, ancestors and that uh, being tied to that, I'm not doing it out of hubris. It's like, yo, I really want to make sure that like, we're all on the same page here that like I am down to like pull this thing we call music uh, from the Stone Age through the uh, Baroque era to the honky tonks. And now like I want it to be part of all of our story. It's not just mine. And like that's I guess that's my long winded way of saying uh, my grandma uh, helped me learn to do these songs. <laughs> Again, right? Like how fucking beautiful is that? And it's so funny to see the patterns of life play out like it's always that man it's always um like it seems like lies don't actually have the possibility to perpetuate over a long period of time right. in, in comparison to the truth mm -hmm. right and there's this concept out there that whatever god is 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 a is a is a component of three variables which is uh truth beauty and good 
right? And so truth really is like a fantastic concept. And I think the thing that stops a 45-year-old and, a, and my nine-year-old sister simultaneously on a YouTube video watching you play is truth. Like truth must be at the utmost bottom of our brainstem. And mm-hmm. so the thing that I'm always thinking about now is like, man, like I can never really like look back on a gig or like a, a period of time where I felt like my actions weren't right. Like I was never really fucking around or doing anything I wasn't proud of. And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean people who do things that they're not proud of aren't good people. Um, but the thing that I do wish was that I wish I was always serving the muse of truth. Not trying to just like, oh, like play the right set list or the manager of this bar, you know, that I don't really even like playing at gives me a raise, right? Because what you're doing there is you're sacrificing the potential of truth for, for a short return of today. And that actually over time isn't good. Like you should always be serving truth and like it makes sense to do so. And you seem to be so yourself. Like you're so in your own world. It's like in like the Shel Silverstein, Roger Miller, like you just exist in the world of Nick Shoulders. So that must only be perpetuated by truth. And so like, how do you go about pursuing truth and following the the sensation of truth? And yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. Well, I mean, again, um, high praise. I really uh, appreciate that that's like um, what you glean out of my music. Cause like I, I, that authenticity if you will, whatever you want to call it, that people assign to it. Um, it's also very taxing. And I, I have conversations with people about that. Where, um, you know, there, there's an element of persona that some people get to, um, to carry them through situations. And maybe I've set myself up here for, for a problem because it, it's very exhausting to kind of interact sometimes because I feel so... Um, or like if it's a fan type situation or anything like that, because I don't know, I, I guess... I'm uh, what you're saying, and I don't want to like. It sounds weird coming out of my no, mouth. You're good. So self that these interactions are very draining, and um, I I don't get kind of the thing to hide behind. And so when even when because I, I like you've said with the social media stuff, I respond to every single message that somebody sends me. Oh yeah. And but my my girlfriend will say like, "Hey dude, you know like you, you got to take a break today because like this is obviously affecting you. Like you yeah. know you." You're, you're talking to these folks like it's you know and 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 it's all very positive mostly but like just the level of intensity with which I I really do give a shit about this music and like want it to be people's minds and, and hands uh it, it it does it's taxing and I think that um I I would like to say that's a good sign because it means it's work but or it's working but uh but it, it does it does occur to me that like I don't know how many inter- I don't know how many artists have that interaction with their craft. And I hope that it's a lot because it, it feels very real and very visceral. But um, I, I don't know. I, in terms of perpetuating truth, it's just sort of like, I don't really know any better. And I think that like <laughs> might kind of help. You know what I mean? Like I, wow. if I had had a, a if it, my life had gone differently... Um, and I hadn't been a backing player for most of my existence, had been a drummer and the harmonica player and the banjo player. And I've been on stages I was not proud of. Them. I've I've served other people's truths. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, same here. Know, I, I, I like, you know, I can think of some very specific circumstances where I'm just like, you know, I was too young and too chicken shit to know how to like, to stand up for myself, but I shouldn't have been there and I shouldn't have been dragged along on that, on that dream. Cause it wasn't my dream. And it, yeah, it made me like realize things differently, but I guess my association with, or my fixation on that truth is I've, I've seen the other shit and 
Right. I just, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I tried, I've been there and, um, this is what we have, where we've ended up. And it's, I, 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 more. I mean, dude, I've done so many gigs where it's like with the, with the, with the artists that, you know, approaches music with a completely different, uh, a, a different, uh, like a manufacturer's book. You know what I mean? Like, like the instructions inside, like they just got a different one than I did. And it's like, you know, the level of care and authenticity that they go into, um, in, in, that they look into putting into the fuel of the machine is not the prime source of what they think matters the most. Right. It's always, sometimes it's been, you know, very vain and it's been all about image and it's been the guy who shows up to a gig and changes 10 minutes before the show. And it's like, <laughs> wait, who's this character that I also feel no authenticity from? Because you're always playing some sort of a character, um, even with yourself right. and your own internal dialogues. You might as well embed that character in truth. Um, you know what I mean? It seems like you, you had the same experience by existing in contrast to beings that don't like to exchange the currency of truth as much as you do. And that revealed to you the importance of truth even more. That, I mean, that's a great way of putting it. And I, I wish I could say these things as succinctly. <laughs> but I, I mean, like, <laughs> here's the thing. It's like, I have, I'm big enough not to hold on to any grudges. Um, and I, don't, I don't necessarily like feel right. like these people are wrong for their approach at all. Um, the, the, oh, and like they got a different manufacturer's playbook. They have a different set of priorities. And honestly, like I got lucky that I was bumming around in a van and basically just had like a cell phone and uh, car insurance to pay for when I started trying to write these songs. If you're somebody into this with any type of looming debt or like, you know, any just there's just a lot of ways that music can be a different experience for folks. And I got incredibly lucky in so many ways, but um, yeah. I really, I don't, a, a younger me would have, um, felt more strongly, but like I see the cats playing 38 special songs uh, during a global pandemic with no masks on at the corner bar on the college street. And I'm just like, you know what? Fuck yeah, dude, whatever gets it done. I don't care anymore. I can't, I've wasted too much time caring. And like, that's just your, that's just your way. And if that's what you're going to do, I don't give a shit anymore. And man, I think that's like, honestly, like, um, that's a kind of a, I think that's a great proof of capitalism um, in the sense of you really can approach the free market with whatever business plan you have and a business plan can change. You know, you can call it a moral plan. Uh, you can call it the, the plan of your intention, right? That, and so that's part of, that should definitely be part of a lot of people's operation, which is like that person is perpetuating their own world, their own universe through their own actions. And like, even if you're going to judge them, that's not even really accurate of a judgment because you only know that one place in time when you're judging that person. You don't have the context of their whole life. Um, I'm, I'm assuming most people feel justified in their actions. Um, and the thing that's happening now is a lot of people are judging people without assuming that uh, they should employ some empathy and, and they're just going to go ahead and judge people because they think their actions are wrong. And it's like, well, no. I mean, if you think your actions are right, then the person next to you probably thinks their actions are right, even if they're doing a 180. It's, oh, sure. Kind of fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, and that that plays into something that like is not necessarily um, a popular opinion from the plurality of either kind of poll here is that like right. you don't arrive at a conclusion or a political opinion uh, that is extreme from a place of like security and uh, and goodwill and well being. Like folks. Uh, when they're desperate, they need shit and they, they, their vote will reflect that. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that justifies, uh, 
every action, but it certainly warrants a second look because if you if you treat people like pariahs, and this applies to anybody hearing this who voted any which way, you know, if you treat your uh, your opposite as an enemy combatant um, and as somebody who's morally bankrupt because of just their political belief, uh, you know, you are in turn uh, morally bankrupt. Like it, it, you can't. You can't really expect people to come by unless you want to live in like an ideologically purist society where people think and do one way, you're going to run into this. This is going to be the rest of our lives is interacting with diversity of opinion. So if that is shocking, so be it. But like you can't lose sight of the fact that these are people and nobody supports who they do uh, because they're like stoked on the way America is going. You know, that's 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 kind of my two cents there without getting too specific. Well, it's the thing too, where you're like, okay, so the idea that a human is going to disregard another human based on their beliefs of of anything that they hold close to their heart, um, you know, that's not a new thing. Humans have always been doing that. Um, It's that that the the intimacy of those interactions now are just higher than ever. Like you're seeing (laughs) it like, if I wanted to, you could, someone could find out, you know, a, a person's opinion on 12 different platforms within a matter of 120 seconds, you know? Mm-hmm. Insane. Um, that's going to definitely perturb some people's egos. And the thing that you're, you're learning, which um, stems back to something I've been talking about a lot probably since May, um, is awareness. Mm-hmm. Which is like, step back and, and don't react from emotion, but act from a place of viewership. Because you're really just watching these people have these opinions and you're watching yourself have an opinion. And that's, it really should be that, that kind of a thing. And it's like not getting chained and uh, chained by other people's uh, actions. Essentially just boiling it down to like, why do you really give a shit what other people think? And, and, and it really doesn't change the way that you can act and operate in this world. Um, right. Yeah. So you kind of, you're, you're on that same boat, it seems. Well, and to a degree, but I also think that there is a, uh, an element of accountability here, which is that like, always, some opinions have consequences like you know have it's feeling some type of way about an issue um a lot of times may not have necessarily human direct consequences but there are a lot of ways of thinking about the world that actively harm living people that are with us today and are your neighbors so you know when people when people react to being labeled as Let's say um, you know your your classes for voting for this particular amendment, and they would blanch at that. It's like I'm not a classist. It's like well, your actions have classist consequences. Your actions might have racist consequences. You know what I mean? Those laws and those things harm people that are alive. So I mean, like, sure, I, I think everyone's entitled to their opinion, but some opinions uh, do more harm than others, and I think people just need to like be aware of that. And, and I think if they were aware of that, those opinions would. Would not maybe not necessarily change, but there would be a different motivation behind them, and I think that's the information vacuum that we live in that's so troubling because social media has made us uh, completely inert in terms of interaction because we don't live in the same uh, information bubble. We we don't have the same set of data to work from, and so if we are lacking the same common language, how are we supposed to communicate? And I'm and I think that's they're making documentaries about that, and that's all over the place now. It's everybody's conversation topic of choice, but. It's important one because I, I grew up in a red state in a rural area being someone who was into art, paleontology, not church, and like everything about rock and roll and darkness and goblins and demons and stuff. So like when I was young here, I was perceived as a threat. 
you know, I, I am a, I am a, uh, I am the antithesis of really the kind of fundamental motivating factors of much of rural Arkansan society. And so I, I understood what it was like to be otherized and to be sort of bullied for being different and all those things. Right. And I, I, as much as I am a product of this waspy Southern, uh, you know, landowning tradition, I am also somebody who has experienced not being um, necessarily welcome in the place that they love. And I think that that should be something, not necessarily that everybody experiences, but most people should try to understand. And I think that people wouldn't feel a lot of ways about a lot of things if they actually truly understood that on like a physical level. Or maybe most people feel that way because they have experienced that and they react uh, violently and progressively. I don't know. I, I'm still trying to figure people out just like you, but it, it is a puzzle. Like similar circumstances can create such different outcomes, you know? Oh my God. Well, you have, you know, just alone, how many variables do you have that come equipped in the, in the proverbial hand the human is dealt, right? You have mm-hmm. the innate uh, set of personality, which is going to differ from every human that's ever existed. And then, <laughs> you, have, you know, it's like, um, although there's commonalities like ocean, like the big five, uh, there's things like that, but it's like, then there's like literally the place you're growing up in and, and, and how much do you respect your parents? How much do you not respect your parents? Like, do you have siblings? Like, who's, what are they teaching you at school? Um, I remember having a teacher um, saying Hanukkah wasn't a real holiday in, right in front of me. And it's like, Jewish, like Hanukkah is a real holiday. But the whole class was like, yeah, like I, is that, I didn't even know that was a real holiday. Like they didn't even think it was, there were so few Jews um, in Tennessee where I grew up, they didn't even know it was like a, a real thing. Like, why were you gone? What were you doing? It's like, like, I didn't even know that was real. And it's like, okay, so I've always had this thing where like when people have a different opinion from me, I just observe it. I, I'm not like, fuck you. Like, that's like, that's a really short side of thing. And you're, you're kind of selling yourself short by doing that and acting that way. And so, man, you, all signs coming from Nick's shoulders right now say it points to um, the practice of empathy. I, I'd say that's, that's, a, that's a close read. I, I think um, I... But here's the thing is like, I, I would like to really kind of, you know, just put it out there that like empathy should be to a certain extent conditional. Um, I think that accountability and um, awareness and not let folks, cause like, let's face it, like people are troubled and they'll, they'll end up serving themselves in one way or another. And I think that like, I, I would like to trust people, but I also think that people need parameters to exist in. Otherwise, uh, they really do run over each other. I, I've seen it. I've lived through it. And we oh, all sure. have. Yeah. That comes you know, it, like the John Locke concept, right? Of, of a state of, um, state of nature and state of war. Ooh, I'm not familiar. You should, you should give me a quick, quick I'm rundown. a huge, I'm a really, I'm a dumbass. I really don't know. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, these are kind of, the founding fathers of, uh, of democracy in some way. And it's like, um, or capitalism rather, sorry. And uh, anyone listening to the Lost Highway podcast, uh, feel free to correct me here. Um, but uh, humans do not naturally exist in a state of uh, peace. We naturally exist in a state of war. We're like other packs of other animals will, they'll tread the Sahara Desert with respect to each other. Like they won't always be killing each other and they won't always be trying to take each other's land. Like they respect the nature of the pack. And humans do to a degree, but we really don't. Like we would rather, 
like they're like a human will want to conquer all the humans. Uh, sure. You know what I'm saying? Maybe not on an individual level from Nick Shoulders to Dan Donato, but surely there's someone being born right now that that wants to win all humans, right? And um, you see it with like companies like Jeff, like uh, with Amazon, Jeff Bezos. We we naturally exist in the state of war, um, and so we came up with agreements here where it's like, hey, let's acknowledge this and come up with parameters. Um, that where it's like, hey, if Nick Shoulders has an apple farm and I want to go get an apple, I can't just go kill him and take his apples and just mm-hmm. take all of his apple farm. I actually have to respect the parameters because there's legal and there's a societal constructs that we've set up around it um, to make sure that we don't manifest war all the time. Right. Um, and it, it's cool to see that happen. Um, and so you're talking about parameters that humans need to uh, be be put in. I think that that might be in vain with what that concept is, or um, that might be. Oh, in, no. Yeah. Well, if I can add a add a little heap on the file here for my, is I'm a I'm a dumbass too. I don't I don't really uh, I'm my currency is uh, is much more ancient. But um, <sighs> for example, uh, sociologists do think that there are a couple different things that are sort of the root of civilization or society as we know it. Uh, grandmothers taking care of our elderly who then could take care of young and then we could have more babies and, you know, women could do more tasks and men were free to hunt and all this. Uh, that's, a, that's a very, like, story and, and controversial uh, way of thinking. But I do think, if, if we're going to be reductionist about it, I do think that one of the pillar moments... Um, in our story of becoming civilized was the idea of the bully male being held to account because there was a certain point in the arms race of the bully male rules all versus we have tools and there's an equal playing field where bully males could be dethroned. And, you know, I, I, I think that that has kind of troubling consequences on a, person-person basis, and I don't subscribe violence uh, to, to anybody, but I do think that that idea of sort of the bully being held to account, the person who can wield the most clout and who can take up the most air and be the most dominant, not always, like just by nature of them being themselves, that we are equipped with tools uh, to even that playing field. And that's what really makes us people is that that existence of war, that state of war is also in a state of constant truce. Because you know, um, you know it, that in some fashion or way, that being physically the biggest person in the room doesn't make you the winner always. And so I think that, like that idea of holding physical bullishness and bulliness and uh, the ever uh, sketchy idea of the ultra dominant male uh, holding those people to account—that's really what makes us people, in, in my mind. Because like a society uh, is only really as good as your weakest link. And if you're not willing to protect those people or willing to squash them, then you're not a society anymore. You know? Well, the thing that's fascinating too, is that the people at the top of, of, of the society that we very much so exist in are males, you know? And mm-hmm. like, that's the thing that needs to be mentioned is like, sure. Like white males are, uh, they're always, they're traditionally at the top. You know what I mean? And, and if you look at, you know, certain industries, it's, it's really a true thing. Um, but they're also always on the bottom. You know what I mean? And it's a fascinating thing to see what we project on our society manifest and then also literally just the natural yin and yang of life manifest, which seems right. to be much, much older and affects all species of living animals, not just humans. Sure. Um, and it's interesting, man, you know, being a white guy in 2020 is a, really is an interesting thing. Um, it really is. Like it's because it's like you, there's a lot of responsibility that you need to sit down and just say, like, yeah, I participate. 
on a lot of levels here. Like mm-hmm. I have a lot of responsibility to, to conduct myself in a way that makes sure that I'm curating only a good opportunity for everyone that comes in contact with me. You know what I sure. mean? Like nobody well, gave you a handbook being a white guy in 2020, but it is, it is, is indeed an interesting thing. Well, and it's, to be honest, like I, um, I really uh, shirk from, from sort of any notions of male fragility, like being held to account as something that I am uh, interested in the conversation and always will be, hopefully. And I, I think that like people age and maybe their, their priorities change, but I, I, I would like to think that I'm, I'm always going to be willing to like, yeah, to age with this idea of responsibility. Of course. But, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think, oh, Dan, can we back up a second? I just got uh-huh. lost. There's a, there's some homeless people crossing the field and they look like they're having a hard time. Uh, we were talking about, fuck. <laughs> oh, <laughs> about, yeah, yeah. So man, that concept of responsibility is a real thing. Like, and you Oh, sure. About, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yeah, I, I had a, I had an anecdote. Sorry, <laughs> that the homeless people have disappeared at this point. I'm, I hope they have a better. <laughs> so my girlfriend and I were having a, a tiff the other night, and basically, I'm not so great at the dishes. I work on it, but I, I fucked up as I tend to. And she sure. said something of like, "It's not easy being a white guy in 2020, but this is one of your like love like levels of account that we need to work on in your immediate life. That's right here in front of you." that's not like grandiose and societal and like has to do with patriarchy and the economy and environmental justice. Just right? Here, right in your backyard, you can get better at the dishes. And I was like, you know what? I don't necessarily buy that it's hard to be a white guy in 2020, but it is interestingly uh, challenging and it's a whole new world. And if you're willing to play along and you're willing to like be in that sort of category of accountability and responsibility and just having any interest and self self work um it shouldn't be that hard like yeah it can be hard to be sort of suddenly in the spotlight of like hey you've perpetuated you know dozens of centuries of uh bad things that you inherited because of an accident of geography where you had more and uh you know uh domesticatable species in one spot than anywhere else in the world and all that like it's it's all accidental it's all very very much not something that you could prescribe to an, on an individual basis. Like I'm not going to go to the haulers in Madison County where I live to somebody that lives hard up, you know, up the hauler in a trailer and say, Hey, you're the beneficiary of privilege and you've done all these bad things. Well, and I'm just like, you have to that change. Is not the you way know, to go about this. That's right. not how it works. That's not what the conversation is. And you know, I, I think that uh, a younger me, if we were in 2020 and I was equipped with the information I had at 22 or something like, who knows how I'd react, but like, we all are, we're, we're all um, here all because of the amount of information we've inherited and the amount of access we have. And if you have been disenfranchised from that access to that information, then, how, you know, what are you going to expect? Do you expect everybody to be like a radical intersectional feminist that's raised in the haulers of Madison County? Like that's an access yeah, thing. So, you know, it's a, it's a, I have, I believe firmly that it will even out that access to information and to economic well-being and prosperity, they're all tied together. And that, uh, that I really do feel like a just society isn't unattainable. Oh, hey, what's up, darling? Oh, there you go. <laughs> she had to grab. Uh, I love that. That might have been the first time it's ever happened. Dude, the thing that's really <laughs> fascinating is um, there's a pygmy, um, you know, the whole concept of also like, deviating from the piggies for a second like being it, it it's it should be it should be hard to be a person of any 
race, and any gender um, at any point in time. Because right. the friction of life entails a responsibility that grows on an exponential level. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? At all moments in time. Like is the, if the universe is growing, life's getting harder because we have more responsibility. <laughs> and it's like, that should be just like, it's not just like one race to blame for that. It's not just one person to blame for that. And you're very right, man, in my, in my opinion, which is coming from someone who doesn't really know a lot, um, really knows nothing. It's like, you're right. Like you can't expect everybody to, to, to hop on the same board. And, and, and so that's beautiful. Um, interesting thing about the pygmies, dude, is, um, you know, these are people that, you know, don't really like, they don't have the need to wear clothes. Their shelter is, is you know, something by, by a Western standard, something we, we would definitely not participate in on, a, on, on, the, on the scale of a whole society. And just mm-hmm. the way they conduct themselves, it's a little bit different than, than people who live here in the West. And, and the thing that's really fascinating is, uh, hey, what's going on? Oh, you're okay. The, uh, the people, uh, no, it's all good. Thank you. Uh, okay. <laughs> Here's the- Here's something I'm really fascinated. In. I want to know if you think about this because it's um, I, I think it's real. So they asked uh, on this documentary, they asked a, a pygmy father and a mother what the meaning of life is. And so this is a person who's never had an iPhone, never had the idea of a credit score, right? Never had the idea of going to a university, become famous on YouTube, and they go, uh, you know, uh, having children and becoming a better person. And respecting your neighbor and things like that, like things that seem to just be kind of wired into the the hard drive that is a human, right? And I think that's real. And man, I think the same things like are apparent in the songs that we sing, like that same desire to like be a better human, to like face loneliness, to mm-hmm. uh, you know what I mean? Like even the imagery of like Jimmy Rogers on the train, like that's the same thing as a hero uh, traversing the desert, you know, to go find the gold and bring it home. And it's like it's fascinating to see these kind of like the, I feel like a lot of the answers that people could find on a social level to living in America today are just like human answers that don't apply to America. You know what I mean? Totally. Well, and I mean, so I don't want to pull in another podcast, your podcast, but I recently Please do. Uh, Please do. played through Dolly Parton's America, and they have a whole section about um, the Tennessee Mountain Home, and I believe the. Uh, the narrator of the podcast family was from Jordan or Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And his father uh, talks about the connection to his appreciation for Dolly Parton's music and country music and it connecting to his Tennessee mountain home in Lebanon. Yeah. And, and then they, they interviewed, um, I think she was a Kenyan singer who talked about how she grew up singing Dolly Parton songs and felt that, that sense of connection to the music by way of that tonality, that pain. And what they identified it as is that uh, ancient Greek translate nostalgia as home pain. So if you have home pain, if you feel some sort of loss, some kind of deep loss of place, um, that that, I think, has a measurable impact on your voice, that there is something... Like even my most jovial song, um, you know, somebody pointed out to me, it's like, that quaver, like, there's there's something down there that hurts. And I was like, man, I, I guess so, because that you're not the only one that told me that. And I think that that really wow. could be applied to anybody who's saying, who deals in these traditionalist genres, is that it's not about, you know, drinking beer and smoking cigs on the back highways with uh, the cows watching and like baby on your mind. You know, it's it's a uh, it's a it's just the profound bummer. It's the ultimate bummer of being alive, and like you hear that in blues and country, and you hear it. Sound bummer. And, 
traditional music that's that's tied is that there's joy, but that joy is tied to this sort of like fundamental understanding that this is all temporary and that it can come with a lot of pain. Well, dude, you seem to really like it's fascinating. You hear about Jim Morrison uh, having the confrontation with mortality at a very young age, and you seem to kind of have that in the sense of uh, in a in in uh, the sense of deep time, like because oh, and I had lung surgeries and all sorts of bad shit. <laughs> no shit. Oh my god, how do you yeah, have yeah. surgeries and sing with as much breath control as you do? That makes no sense. You got me, man. I, my lung collapsed twice when I was young. Um, I was sixteen. 16- 19 the second, I had a tube about an inch across in my side. I learned to play the banjo in the hospital, actually, because I was so bored. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a whole deal. But I, I really, I I don't know. I was a harmonica player, too. And people would find that out. And they're like, whoa, you had pneumothoraxes and you're doing this? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> is, this, is this bad? What am I What am I not old here? But uh, wow. yeah, that that sort of, that dancing with uh, with the edge, I mean, that's I think a lot of artists who end up getting listen, getting heard, you know, not just listened to, but who are really uh, heard in their lyrics and their content and the, the the quality of their voice and everything like that, are usually communicating some kind of pain and some kind of uh, something to do with their story that uh, that influences that. And that home pain is part of what you hear in every country song. Because I mean, like, you know, if, if you're listening to uh, someone from the outlaw days of the '60s or the late '20s or something, you're still hearing some level of disenfranchisement and some level of hard times in there. Even if it's the most like hopping song, it's like, well, why are they like, you know, hot dog, hot dog, for, <laughs> sorry, a hot rod board and a two dollar bill? You know, it's not like I'm in a limo with uh, with a lot of money. It's it's it's, it's like we're doing the best you can with what you got. Whoa, man. You know, so brilliantly quoting Hank Sr. Like, he was the dude who was able to take... I feel like it's everyone just communicating from a lens that is their own universe. And sure. it's like, I feel like part of this whole life simulation is that we're just literally given the same same old trials that, like, Hercules faced, that Hank Sr. faced. And mm-hmm. it's your job is to create little... Um, like harmonious compositions that can kind of just relay the same energies and the same stories and the same tales over and over. And you mentioned as a traditionalist genre and Mm -hmm. holy fuck. So like what an amazing example of why we should appreciate the people of yesterday and people who are a little bit older than us is um, you inherently in your aesthetic or not traditionalist in the way that you approach um, putting out music is not traditionalist in the, in the scheme of a geographical or sorry, a chronological sense of how long music's been put out. YouTube's a really interesting way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, not traditionalist at all. And, and you don't even know what you're like doing on like a quantitative level. Like that's <laughs> fucking insane. But yet you understand that there's traditional parameters that are happening here. And it, that's actually not something that, that puts you in a cage. It's something that uh, allows you to f- fly free and, and be you for it. I appreciate framing it like that because I'm honestly quite often confronted with this notion of like, okay, so what what's keeping me here? Because wow. you know, kind of have all these associations and all these problems and all these things that I'm trying to actively address, but also it's sometimes taxing when I'm like, hey, go listen to Uncle Dave Macon, and somebody comes back and they're like, what's with all the N-word songs? And I'm like, okay, so, you know, like this is a longer conversation. Let's That's have this. Scary one. thing when people can interpret art in the era that it was once created, and the fact that humans naturally get more intelligent, and more empathetic over time. Like people just sure, think, yeah. Like, it's how HBO taking down Gone with the Wind. It's like it's a movie. Like, come on, that's a real. Well, part of it, I think, is like, how far have we come? You can measure it by the art of the past, you know? And like, that's, it can be very scary and it can also be kind of comforting in some ways. But um, 
back back to the other question. Uh, I uh, oh crap, what was the other question? I just lost it. Uh, oh, I love this, dude. That's such a such a perfect example of a of a really creative mind. I mean, Jesus Christ, that's, <laughs> yeah, beautiful man. Yeah, so I was just you know. Basically, it was just the idea of like, well, be, if we exist in a traditionalist genre, it's really not like gives you it gives you per- parameters. Don't fence me in, you know, uh, Sons right. of the Pioneers and Roy Rogers, and it's like, you know, that's the realest thing ever. So, you know, sure. I think you were just improvising on that. For for me, it kind of ties back to all that like paleontological deep time sort of like continuity stuff. That's that's nerdy, but it's also like very immediate and kind of like. Wow. Uh, and that's like when I'm playing mouthbow, fiddle tune, Jimmy Driftwood songs, like what, you know, the thing I, I posted recently, uh, you know, I'm playing an instrument that's, as far as we understand, the first stringed instrument. And I'm playing, you know, like the like influenced, syncopated via West Africa, via slavery, via global capitalism, yeah. uh, fiddle tune that was stranded in this pocket of Arkansas. That's the poorest state in the union or second poorest state in the union with some of the poorest counties in the Western hemisphere, creating this music that I inherited by digital means, you know, or like I grew up in the woods, whacking a bow against my cheek to make like Mary had a little lamb sounds. And I, I was playing an instrument that is as old as humanity. Hell, we don't quite know, but that could be like 300,000 years of continuous organized sound and back through it like when i hear a yodel i can hear the pygmy yodels too i can hear the yodels all the way back to tube and uh, throat singing how I, about that tube and throat singing where they get two pitches so I, at the same time i can kind of do it i hate to brag too much but I, I figured that out and like i i remember just feeling like holy shit again i'm in this deep dark strange undercurrent of whatever it is to be a person that has a soundtrack and we uh, the like lucky torchbearers of that soundtrack. And I feel just, again, because I, I I trained to be an artist and I worked a bunch of service industry jobs and a bunch of punk bands and didn't necessarily think of myself as a whistling torchbearer of some ancient tradition. But like realizing that is a part of my identity and owning it and wanting that to be me, that like is an important step. And I think a lot of people out there right now are listening to this who maybe are into old country because it reminds them of that home pain that they don't even, they're not from that home and they maybe would want to push to tr- like pursue the traditional music of their region, of their place, of their lineage. And like, just, I just want, everybody has folks, you know? So there's folk music for everybody out there. And I, I just wish that like, maybe we didn't use um, country music as a vehicle for universal rurality because it kind of, creates a caricature out of a very marginalized person, the person up the hauler in Madison County, who is the, you know, someone that you're going to have to talk to eventually about the consequences of their opinions. Like it, it's such a strange amalgamation of, of things, but it is also very specifically one thing, you know? Yeah, dude. That's the, that's the, one of the great uh, paradoxes of life is that whatever you're doing is so that one thing, but it's also so not. <laughs> it's the, it's all of it. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Not, like you're talking about music is like one of the most symbolically applicable things to a, a good life. You know what I mean? So you stay in tune. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like quite literally though, like, you know, so it's a thing. That's why I love about music is that it's so, you can get so small and in the moment with it. Like, what was I doing on beat 37 and on, you know, that G sharp. It's like, but then also it's like, it's, it's also the most abstract thing when you play it for somebody it's like, yeah, sounds like my grandmother. It's like, I yeah. didn't know your grandmother. Like, holy shit. Like, you're talking about 
life really the realities that we all have are exponentially infinite and there's no way to actually even understand what you're creating because people are going to interpret it as a million things like what my nine-year-old sister thought of nick shoulders is way different than what i thought you know what i mean and she fucking loves it and it's like you might as well do i think it just boils down to you might as well bet on truth uh because it seems like deep time perpetuates truth <laughs> and you don't even know why, but it seems like truth really might be the thing to uh, to lean on as we move forward That's, in the world of 2021 onward. And maybe you've you've happened upon yeah the the currency I should deal in, and I. I don't know. I see. That's the thing is, I'm so happy to talk with somebody like you who can kind of like bounce this stuff back at me because I'm, for all intents and purposes, kind of stumbling around in the dark here. Like, wow. sure, I've got. Um, an amazing group of people I landed in in New Orleans and honed my craft and, you know, was able to get my craft to the world. But um, essentially, right. I'm still the nature punk who happened to have singing grandparents. You know, it's, I did, I never, I never expected to land here and I'm so stoked people are listening. Um, and maybe that's, that's kind of the beauty of it all. It's like, if I had been really expecting this to work, maybe I wouldn't have tried the things I did. Dude, when people are too busy expecting, they're not busy enough seeing. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and maybe I wouldn't have gone to New Orleans and maybe I wouldn't have moved back with my grandma or maybe I wouldn't have tried traveling in the first place. Maybe I'd still be working at a record store in Arkansas as I was when I was 21. You know, that's you like... the best person to, to run into at a record store though? Like, my God, dude. I, I gave somebody, some, some real recommendations that they love, always loved. I heard from somebody recently that there is a little divided. Somebody, sorry, this group of people would laugh at me, this this group of younger girls, because I was always like so obviously stoned or whatever and just wow. like hung hanging out and be like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yes, you can find it back there, I guess. But like this other guy was like, man, you really turned uh, a part of my life in a cool direction because now I play like old time banjo and fiddle. And it's because you suggested this local album that was in there and like you had been listening to it on the speakers. And I was like, that is such an amazing story because that that was my like that's my only avenue of activism that I feel like I'm like granted on sort of a day to day uh, transaction basis is I can like give people something joy and that that feels fucking weird but it's like pretty fucking cool too and kudos that, to you also to recognizing that a valid form of active activism is is inserting a currency of truth and positivity uh you know sure. what i mean and something that you truly do like understand how to do like you're not speaking from uh, a place of where you really truly are like a fool on uh, you have no idea what you're saying and you're just like ramming you know just ramming off facts that you read on some website that you think you should trust mm-hmm. it's like you're you know putting out music into the world really is a thing that nick shoulders like does really well. It's like, you should keep on doing that. It's also very fucking funny to see how the exponential side effects of truth manifest. And it's like, you know, you were being truthful, listening to the music you loved and that dude heard it and he resonated with it in his like human vibrator machine that's in his heart. And he's like, yeah, I like that. And now it still affects his life. It's like, that's mm-hmm. fucking crazy. You know? <laughs> and, and so I could find um, that weird ornithology professor at Audubon camp Come on. <laughs> who played old time fiddle and who played the cuckoo. And I was like, oh, that's a cool, cool sound. I want to hear that again. And remembered it when I was 14, looking it up on LimeWire and was able to track down an old, you know, 1920s recording of the cuckoo. So it's like these threads, you know, it's like, yep. you can't find everybody you'd like to thank for steering you in weird directions. But I'd also like, 
I'd like to find the person that showed me Black Flag. I would like to find a lot of people that like helped me out on the way. And like, you want to talk about activists of truth, man? Henry Rollins is the winner. I mean, you know, he like he truly is the boss of the working um, man's truth. You know, of it, the Western working man U.S. dude's truth, like and and woman. You know, like that truly is one of the heroes. I think what make Hank. What makes Hank's message so cool, too, is that it's this bridge between what it used to mean to be working class and what it means now. Because, like, let's face it, you know, if you got an F-250 and you live in the suburbs and you got a contracting firm, like, you're not, you're not working class anymore. And, like, it, no matter how much pop country you listen to and how many times you vote red, like, that's not going to change. Like, you know, the people that are working class now are in chicken factories and are on Amazon workplace floors and are really just getting like, are, are not, there's no protection and there's no glory and there's no blue collar uh, affect or um, any sort of glorification of it. It's just ugly and it's hard and exploitive, you know? And like that, we used to really glorify the worker and we had this idea and we still chase this fetishized idea of the white working class voter and the white working class, the blue collar worker. But times done changed, and the worst, hardest jobs in this country are being worked by people that are getting utterly exploited in it. And like, I, I think that Hank was that bridge between understanding that, yeah, you used to just get your ass kicked by your job working in the factory, and then you came home covered in, in soot and oil, and then that, that, you know, like you had no rights, and also the service industry type of, of, of person really suffers because they have to like suck up to a million customers at Wendy's and get grease burned there ears hurt because the earpiece has got that one frequency you're tired of hearing all fucking day long. And like, you know, that, that idea of like the service industry grunt and the person in the factory covered in soot, like they're the same person. And we've internalized this fucked up idea that they're different. And I really think that like, again, you nailed it, that Hank Rollins is like that, that bridge between, um, between a, a world of working and a world of working we exist in now. Man, the thing that's fucking crazy is like, it seems like this, the chessboard is the same, but the pronouns change like every hundred years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, it really is, dude. Like, so you're, you're going to tell me that there's no comparison to Henry Ford and Jeff Bezos? Sure, like <laughs> the machine floors are a little bit more automated, but it's operating on the same morals and the, and the same intention and, and the workers that are dealt with in that, in that exchange. Um, sure. It's this. It's more or less kind of a similar deal. Like it's not all that different. It's crazy uh -huh. to see. So, I guess the beautiful thing is, man, is that uh, you know, music always works. <laughs> well, you can't I, really I, turn I, it off. Like it's always going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and and that continuity is comforting, and it's also like it's a big responsibility because sometimes it feels like I'm looking down at the mountain, and then I realize I'm I'm part of the mountain. My feet are in the rock. Like I'm Let's here. Oh, <laughs> the existential crisis. Let's go. I know. And, and I'm part of it all. And I'm also separate and I'm also uh, stuck with it just like all of us. So Be I mean, here now and yodel, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, now mountain, I better just yodel. <laughs> Yeah, it's I, man. I I will say I'm I'm glad yodeling works and people think it's cool. But uh, I I got made fun of so much in high school for just being unable to contain all my fucked up noises, and that was one of them. Where I had a high school English teacher who said uh, she thought I had Tourette syndrome, which I don't think you're supposed to tell a child, especially outside of a clinical. Especially if you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's legal. But she was like, I think you have Tourette syndrome. And I was like, I just like to yodel, but. You know, HD or okay. That's insane. She was wrong, clearly. 
Oh, I'm definitely wrong. Not Tourette's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, come on. But man, make your noise. Empower. We got to empower differences. You know, and your art absolutely does that, man. You empower difference by actively putting out examples in the world of you being an example of leaning into your differences and leaning into your strengths and acknowledging your weaknesses inherently by doing so. And I think that I really appreciate you saying so. And I'd like to say the, to all the other nails that stick out, um, you don't always get hammered down. Sometimes they just hit you a lot and you bend and they can't get it back in the wood and they're stuck with you forever. And that's me. So That might be the best way to end a podcast I've ever heard, had a, a privilege of operating within. I mean, that is just the best thing ever. <laughs> Dude, I really enjoyed this time. Thank you so much, my friend. You have a lifelong fan on my end. Hey, no, thank you so much for reaching out. I appreciate you and your music so much. It's it's pretty cool to just have the World Wide Web to connect on, by God. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, hey, stay patient, stay cosmic, and, and stay happy. Just keep on doing you because it's really inspiring. Uh, keep between the ditches, as they say. <laughs> All right, my friend. I'll talk to you later. I'll take the later, man. You see, I didn't know the difference between a, a whistle and a warble, and like I had no idea about so many things that Nick knows about and yet we still love the same kind of country music and we still feel affected in the same way by the truth and so the power of the truth is one of the most real things that we can adhere to my friends um Nick Shoulders is proving the pudding that if you adhere to truth beauty and goodness and uh you just create quality music quality content and you work really hard and you just be honest it works no strategy there. It's beautiful. Uh, what we were listening to today was um, Deal, 1980, 11:30, Grateful Dead, of course. Uh, G for Jesus, uh, a Nick Shoulders original song. And now Chad Atkins, Mr. Sandman, uh, from, from the king of Nashville himself. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to the Lost Highway podcast. Please support us on Patreon, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, go buy yourself a Cosmic Country hoodie uh, for this upcoming winter season. And y'all stay cosmic. See y'all next time.